talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT. Welcome back to the third hour of the weekend's show here on TNT, the Sunday edition. I hope that you've enjoyed the show so far. We had Billy Tihart Kahika in the first hour, an incredible man in New Zealand and the amount of work that he's doing to expose some hidden truths. It's a very, very big deal. And in the last hour, you heard Kathy O'Brien. What a wonderful lady she is, a real, true survivor. Quite an incredible story. I trust that you've enjoyed that. Now, Noam Chomsky, you know the name, one of considered to be one of the world's great intellectuals, has always confused me. Came out with an Oscar-winning documentary called Manufacturing Consent, and that was a really interesting story in its time, seemed to be ahead of its time. And then something happened around about 2016 in the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump election when all of these incredible stories were coming to light, one of which was Jeffrey Epstein, amongst others, he was interviewed by a student and asked a very simple question, do you believe in conspiracy theories? It's an interesting question to ask. Of course, there was a lot going around and he completely dismissed it and said, no, I don't, because I do not believe that our institutions can be corrupted. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's a very, very bold statement because it assumes that anyone in authority is automatically the truth. And one thing we've all learned is that truth is the authority, not the other way around. And, well, this hour we're going to dedicate to an emeritus professor. His name is Ramesh Thakur. He's a Brownstone Institute senior scholar. He was a former United Nations Assistant Secretary General. Goodness me, he was a professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And I'm going to welcome him in now, Professor Ramesh. Welcome to the show. Um, it's uh, wonderful to have you on. And you've done a, a lot of work uh, and a lot of articles that have been published in the in the Spectator. And you're covering a lot of ground. And I was hoping that we could have a chat or perhaps start uh, with a little bit of a background, how it was that you get to become an Assistant Secretary General at the United Nations. Ah, uh, that was through the United Nations University. Uh, I was the Senior Vice Rector. Uh, and Assistant Secretary General uh, at that rank. So th that's how I became involved with the UN. I mean, it's an incredible story. Anyone who thinks that you can get to a position of uh, authority at the United Nations means that uh, you have a role in determining and working within policy that's going to have benefit around the world. Your experience there to where you are today, what what's changed? Well, most importantly, two most important factors. One, the world has changed, including domestic politics and uh, opinions uh, in many countries, including the Western countries. Uh, and second, we've had uh, two secretaries general since my time. I worked under Kofi Annan. He had a particular viewpoint. Uh, I think he was one of the one of two uh, outstanding secretary general that the UN has had, the other being Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, and he was a wonderful uh, humane being who was scarred by his experiences as Undersecretary General in charge of peacekeeping in the Rwanda and Srebrenica uh, tragedies and was determined to try and avoid those. So, yes, I think it was, I was in the system at the right time 
under the right Secretary General, uh, I don't think I would have been as productive or happy with another Secretary General. Uh, and I left pretty much as uh, soon as Kofi Annan's term expired. Is leaving the United Nations something that people do once you get in? Do you stay in? Was your action, in other words, unusual that you decided to leave? I think mine was unusual. Uh, as is true in politics, as is true in other institutions, organizations, there are a lot of careerists. But the problem is something else. Uh, and too many people in Australia tend to blame it on third world countries. But in fact, the Western countries have been just as responsible for damaging the ideals of the United Nations. And that is an objective, impartial, internationalist perspective uh, for his people. So you have a lot of young people who enter with great ideals and then very quickly become disillusioned with the politics. Uh, and I think we need to have a better appreciation that the United Nations exists at the intersection of realism and idealism. Uh, it, it, it couldn't operate in a world that is infused with realist power political calculations and equations. And the height of that is the Security Council. And again, I think we in the West tend to forget that all the five permanent members, three are Western, the United States, the United Kingdom and France, uh, and only two are from if you like, what used to be the Iron Curtain, China and Russia, and they dominate the system. On the other hand, the normative center of gravity is the General Assembly. And the balance there over the decades has shifted quite substantially towards third world countries. But much of the General Assembly sentiment is motiv motivated as much by frustration and resentment at the dominance of the permanent members uh, and the Security Council. So you have this tension already. And I think the final element I would say is people should remember that there is no such thing as the United Nations. The United Nations consists of many different entities, many different individuals, and individuals reflect the temper of the times. They reflect individual preferences and perspectives uh, and weaknesses. The senior most posts are, the more senior you get in the system generally, the more political are the calculations in determining your placement and appointment. And again, the, the five permanent members dominate the system. Uh, and it remains true that even today, the single most influential member state of the United Nations throughout the system is the United States. And we should remember that uh, at the same time, the ideal that the United Nations represents, that is something we cannot, as human beings, afford to give up. Because what it represents is a dream of a world where want gives way to dignity, hopes, fear are turned into hopes, and deprivation gives way to aspirations. Uh, and that is something we can't afford to give, uh, overlook. It is a world where it's the only body in the world where all of the divided fragments of humanity are gathered together under one house. And that is the attraction, that is the dream, and it is the attraction that brings a lot of people to invest in the United Nations. Uh, I think the biggest question is, has the accumulated 
uh, weight and baggage become uh, too heavy uh, to succeed in the major structural reforms. Uh, I'm coming around reluctantly to conclusion, probably. That's a, that's a bold statement and a, and, and a big way, way to arrive at something completely unexpected, isn't it? That no matter how much good intention there is, and the idea of moving from reality and merging it with idealism, but coming out the other side and realising that it might not be able to ever realise its full potential. And then there's the other side that realises that what if it gets it wrong in the idea that we're moving into this world of globalism, and which seems to be centred again in some sort of pyramid where there's some global one world government at the top, and everyone else has to sort of merge one way or another, 200 and something countries all having to merge into one government. It just doesn't mm -hmm. make much sense. And many people find that frightening. Of course, when you look at World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab doing interviews saying, well, in the future, we might not even need to have elections because we can already tell through digital technology, or paraphrasing, <laughs> of course, that, of what people's intentions are. But if you had a one world government, could you even have an election for a leader or is that already too far gone? Jason, again, let me unpack that because mm. I think there are two different strands that get merged and confused. One is, if you think of the person you mentioned and the institutions we talked about, it's still dominated by Westerners, but it's the technocrats, the plutocrats, the experts, not ordinary people. And there is no question but that they seem to hold uh, a certain degree of contempt and disdain for ordinary people. And of course, democracy is ruled by the ordinary people, and that's why they don't necessarily feel comfortable with that. And if you think of the WHO and what it has done over the past few years, particularly under COVID, and think of the role of uh, Bill Gates, and not just through the Gates Foundation, but through the network that he has created of key people in national government positions around the world, as well as in international organizations. So that's one strand of the discomfort that we, the peoples, we, the citizens, have begun to feel, uh, exacerbated by the fact that more and more countries have moved away from giving money to the core budget of the United Nations system and the different entities, and instead giving it as voluntary contributions which makes the entities vulnerable to capture by big donors, including like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is one of the biggest donors, uh, bigger than 90% of the countries uh, to the WHO. So that's one strand. The second strand is something different. And that is the existing liberal international order was constructed, designed, and essentially operated by the dominant Western countries at the end of the Second World War, led by the United States. Now their economic, diplomatic, and military weight in the world order has experienced relative decline. And the country that has risen most dramatically is China. That creates a lot of discomfort in Western countries. For the first time in several centuries, we are faced with a prospect of a global hegemon that is not Western, that's not liberal democratic, that's not English speaking, and that's not market economy. 
all that makes us very distrustful uh, and uneasy. But you can't have any system of international organizations that is totally detached from the underlying economic, military, and political powers uh, that govern international relations. And we haven't found a solution to that. And that's where I go back to that mix and intersection of realism and idealism. Maybe the world has become too complex uh, to accommodate all that. Uh, maybe, and there's a third factor, which is <laughs> even more worrying, I'm sorry to say, and that is that traditionally throughout history, as we experience stress in the international system, this, caused by this discrepancy between the objective power and economic distribution and how that is represented in the existing institutions, what has resolved that typically in history, throughout history, has been war, decisive outcomes on the battlefield. Now, unfortunately, in today's nuclear age, that is ruled out. So we have outlawed and delegitimized the resort to force by states, but we haven't found mechanisms and procedures for forcing through changes that reflect changes in the underlying balance. And so we have, for example, the BRICS grouping, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, which is now expanded to include some other countries as well, but a few other countries. The biggest motivating factor behind that was the failure and refusal of the powers that be to accommodate the rise of China and India and other countries as major economic players in the world. Finally, they gave up and set up their own grouping. And then we tried to bring them together. You know, we had the G7 initially, then you had the BRICS, and then we tried to bring them together in the G20. That hasn't quite worked out either. So that factor, going back to the Security Council, how can you resolve today's problems in Asia without having countries like India and Japan at the table, at the top table? I mean, how can China be the only permanent member from Asia? This is in the UN geographical grouping, 60% of the world's population with only one permanent member. And Europe, a tiny country, has France and the UK, uh, and also Russia, which at least is half European, if you like, there. Uh, so we have not been able to force through these changes. We've tried for decades. There's not no prospect in the foreseeable future of changing the composition and powers of the Security Council, of getting rid of the veto, for example. And again, that's a problem that has been abused and misused by the West as much as by uh, Russia and China. Uh, and that has brought in a lot of stress. So we are at a point where the old order is crumbling and we seem to lack the capacity and the will and frankly, the visionary leadership and statesmanship to bring in place a new order before disaster strikes. It's quite incredible, isn't it, from a historical perspective that so many things are happening at this exact moment in history and we look for it and even as you said there, the, the, the lack of leadership to, to move forward into another area or perhaps this is the, um, the calm before the storm when there is going to be some form of revolution and we look forward and this year is an incredible year as I've mentioned previously in the show yesterday and today 
We've got five major elections coming up in Russia and India or the United States, Canada, the UK, and even Australia has got to go off uh, before the middle of next year. So the Five Eyes nations would have all been through an election cycle in 18 months if you include New Zealand. And there is that air of political change. And you can see it in the polls that uh, it seems that in the West, political change is everywhere. And yet in India, it looks like Modi is a certainty to be returned to office just as Putin will be in Russia. The BRICS nations seem to have got the steady shift that we're not seeing in the West. And I find that a fascinating uh, situation that we're in. And it feels like that even if we can't exactly see what's happening, we're going to move into a new era one way or another, whether we, we like it or not. What we'll do now is we'll take a quick break. And when we come back with Professor Ramesh Thakur, we're going to talk about the United Nations and its failings, perhaps, if want for a better term, in what's happening in Israel and Hamas in the war there, in particular about uh, assaults of Israeli women, an article that uh, Professor Ramesh has written recently in The Spectator. We'll take a break and we'll be back with more here on TNT in just a moment. TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those bees smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends and I'm with Professor Ramesh Thakur. Ramesh, I want to talk to you about the events in Israel and some of the writing that you've been doing about it. Um, if we go back to the beginning, October 7, it seemed to me that something was amiss in terms of how it was that we could see Israel with this incredible defensive system just let in these attackers. 
didn't think it was right. I thought it might have been some sort of false flag. And there were even videos coming out that Benjamin Netanyahu had said in meetings in the Knesset that um, that they fund Hamas and that this was the way that it was, suggesting that maybe this was somehow set up. It's a big, far call to, uh, to look at, but it kind of points to what we saw. But the big thing is that regardless of what happened there, and that's another that's a story for another day, it's the events that occur after that. And you've written specifically about the uh, sexual abuse and rape, et cetera, of Israeli women. And I wanted to uh, get you to explain, if you can, how you arrived at this situation. It seems that no one else was interested in talking about, certainly not writing about. Well, let's start where you started off. I think there were three circles of failure uh, and the point you raised is interesting because it, it suggests that we had accepted and internalized the dominance of Israel to an extent where we just wouldn't, could not believe that this could be a genuine Hamas operation. So the Israelis were not the only ones surprised. But the three circles of failure were firstly intelligence, and that is usually at, on this scale an indication not that the raw intelligence wasn't there, but that they were not able to analyze, the analysts were not able to process it in time to connect the dots and see what was happening. And, and there's some indication that that was true. The second failure was the breakdown of the physical barriers, the ease with which the Hamas fighters, the terrorists came over uh, by land, sea, and air, the, the paragliders, uh, uh, that caught everyone by surprise. And the third one, uh, which you can see if you read some of the real-time WhatsApp messages from people who were caught in that and many of them died. And that was the inexcusable delay and tiredness of the Israeli military to come to the scene to get into action and, and, and protect even late what they could do. So those will have to be investigated and will be investigated with a degree of rigorous thoroughness sub, uh, later on. But the second element was, I'm going to give my third element without elaborating first, and that is, we have to remember that Israeli military would not be in Gaza today if what happened on 7th October hadn't happened. And I don't think we can afford to forget that. It's, it's a very key factor in that. Having said that, what happened on 7th October was a pogrom in the sense that Hamas has a charter commitment for the extermination of Israel as a state and the expulsion of Jews from the entire region. That's what that slogan from the river to the sea means. It means it's a region free of any Jewish presence uh, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. They targeted civilians and within civilians, the elderly, the women and the children quite deliberately, both for killing and for taking hostages. So civilians were not collateral incidental damage, the inevitable byproduct of any fighting. From their point of view, they were deliberately targeted. Worse, we know from captured documents and from some of the captured terrorists and in their interrogation, that it was part of the strategy to use rape and sexual violence to weaponize these in order to inflict maximum humiliation, to brutalize, to mutilate. Uh, it, it, you can't even talk, we can't talk about it. Some of those were so graphic and so thing, so, so, so brutal. 
But because they were so successful, we haven't as many direct witness testimonies and evidence as we would normally have. Because once they were raped, they were then slaughtered and killed or taken as hostage. And also because of the shock and trauma and the extent of the damage, it took a long time for the Israeli forensic teams even to recover the bodies, to determine how many had been killed, to find out how many had been taken hostage. And their priority for understandable reasons was not securing crime of the scene and keeping people away, uh, including rescuers and first responders. It was saving people, determining where they are, how many are still alive, are they still hiding, etc. And so the extent of forensic evidence took time to collect and collate. Uh, and when you had the people burnt, when you had, we don't even know as far as I can recall, the, whether in this case the adult was a male or female, but either the father or the mother wrapped his or her arms around the little baby. And that's how they're burnt and they're fused together. And so it took them a long time to develop images and scans to establish that they were in that firstly that they were human beings and secondly that it was one child and one adult it took a lot of time so for all these reasons the extent and the sheer depravity took time but you had real-time video image you had real-time whatsapp and other telecommunications intercepts both from the victims and from the kibbutzim, kibbutz where you had dash cams and security cameras. Yes. And from the uh, from the GoPro uh, cameras that some, many of the terrorists had, and they filmed it, and they filmed it with great glee and exultation and pride that they were doing this. I'm going to rape a Jewish woman, etc. So there was absolutely no doubt from the start that this was happening. It was particularly severe. It was particularly traumatizing and traumatic. And there was no excuse for UN women, which was created as a separate entity during my time in the UN, and we all supported it, to bring together within one umbrella. Its primary purpose was to have come out and condemned and expressed solidarity. And it took them a long time, and it took the Secretary General, I think, too long, unconscionably long, uh, to come out and, and say those things. And so you have these memes, me too, unless you're a Jew, mm. uh, etc. Uh, and I think that remains unforgivable. I, I just, I cannot accept that the head of UN Women has neither resigned nor been fired as yet. That, that is simply unacceptable. It is a hanging offense of a firing offense, if you like. So that remains the thing. And, and because of that, it undermines the entire human rights norm and human rights machinery, not just UN women, but the Office of the Human Rights, a High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva as well. And it uh, undermines or degrades that idealistic element uh, of the United Nations itself. And I think it has also, in practical terms, diminished the capacity of the United Nations as an independent actor to influence the actions of the Israeli government. After that, 
it's hard to find any Israeli who will accept the legitimate authority of the United Nations to say anything about the conflict as opposed to staying out. Yes. And that is a very high price that the UN has paid. Now, historically, and I'll finish with that, I think we should remember nonetheless that there's unlikely to be any other country that has got away with defying as many UN resolutions as Israel. And that's due to the absolute protection of Israel by the United States in the Security Council and multiple vetoes uh, of resolutions. On the other hand, it's clearly the case that no other country has been singled out as often by the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council as Israel has for condemnation and vilification and other countries, many of whom are guilty of serious human rights abuses themselves, point the finger at Israel. And this duality, uh, I think, reflects much of the problem uh, in the UN's inability to deal with Israel uh, as well. Indeed, it's uh, major statements that people need to uh, to be able to understand because it is just so complicated. I wanted to um, just well, it is. I mean, when I was still teaching, I used to say uh, my introductory course on the Middle East conflict. If you understand the Middle East conflict, you have been misinformed. <laughs> that is so true. I um I wanted to uh, just pivot into the idea of collective punishment. It's one thing to say that uh, Israel attacking Gaza and uh, and twenty thousand people that have perished in the war, and and that's argued as collective punishment against Hamas in their process. I also want to juxtapose that against the term of anti-Semitism, and people may roll their eyes and say, oh, whatever. But isn't anti-Semitism yet another form of collective punishment? After all, it's the Israeli government, not the Israeli people, who are the ones that are attacking or defending, I guess, against Hamas by going into Gaza and doing it. Is there a way that you've been able to explain perhaps the collective punishment idea on both sides of this? camp and are there innocent victims that need to be somehow acknowledged in a different way than we seem to be doing at the moment by trying to pick a side and seeing if that's the way out oh absolutely uh there is i mean this middle east conflict the israel-palestine conflict even what's happening in gaza uh is not free of nuance and complexity it's, mm. it's a very vexed issue i think we have to make a distinction between the government of israel and the people of Israel and the Jewish people. It's a three-step distinction. One, we have to make a distinction between Hamas and the people of Palestine as well. And we have to differentiate what's happening in Gaza with Hamas, with the situation in the West Bank, and then in, in uh, to the north of Israel in Lebanon, where it's Hezbollah rather than Hamas that is the main actor. Now, in terms of we also must remember anti-Semitism is not just the world's oldest surviving hatred of a whole group of people, but the hatred that has taken the most extreme form historically in the Holocaust. And the scale and the shock of what happened on 7th October last year was the biggest attack on Jews since the Holocaust and therefore brought back vivid memories of the threat of the extermination of the entire Jewish race 
and people that has that has a memory that has been internalized for understandable reasons by many Jews. And the creation of Israel as the one state where they could feel safe. And that compact between citizen and state was broken on 7th October when the government of Israel failed to keep its people safe inside Israel. That I think most people in the West and certainly more, almost all the young people uh, can't, don't recognize uh, or are unable to grasp that and come to terms with that. And yet it's a very, very important feature of that. And there will be a reckoning around that once the Gaza conflict is over. So that's one side. The other side is you had, I mean, Israel was a military occupier in Gaza. It pulls out in 2005. You have elections in 2006. Hamas wins. Having won, it then be decides or begins to liquidate any serious opposition. And by liquidate, I mean liquidate. It, it gets rid of them. They haven't had elections since. But you have had a reimposition of de facto Israeli control in 2007 with an air, sea, and land blockade, which uh, they just justified in terms of their security needs. It wasn't a comprehensive and total blockade, but nonetheless, it was there. And it's because of that, that the UN system and the rest of the international community continues to refer to Palestine as occupied territory and Israel as the uh, occupying power, which has significance and consequences in terms of uh, international law and the rights to resist, etc. Et so that part is also there. Having said that, Hamas by its charter is committed to destroying Israel. You've seen the extent of Jew hatred inculcated into the population. And it, this is not just Hamas, but into the general population in Gaza. Uh, and, and part of that hatred is intense resentment of Israeli control and the ability of Hamas successfully to blame and scapegoat Israel for all its failures of governance, uh, where, for example, the leaders clearly live in conditions of luxury, uh, directing and misusing a lot of international aid that comes in. We shouldn't forget, by the way, each cycle of violence that they engage in brings forth more aid after that. So that works financially to their advantage also if you want to follow the money. That, that's a factor there. I think civ civilian casualties is inevitable in any war. But we have moved progressively to place increasing normative restraints on directly targeting civilians. These have been extensions. Well, firstly, they developed in relations to laws of armed conflict governing warfare between uniformed armies representing state actors. But then they were extended to non-state actors as well. But we haven't found any practical means of enforcing these norms on non-state actors. Israel doesn't target civilians directly. Hamas does. Hamas direct targeted Israelis and anyone living in southern Israel when it went in on 7th October 
including lots of foreigners. Israel targets Hamas. Its war is with Hamas, not with people of Gaza. But Hamas, secondly, has embedded its fighters and hidden its weapons. It's embedded its fighters within civilian populations, dense civilian populations, and hidden its weapons in schools and underneath hospitals and its command centers. And there's, we've known about that for many years, and there's lots of independent confirmation of that. The practical import of that is Hamas has accepted from the start that its own people will be killed in large numbers with any massive Israeli retaliation. So did it expect Israeli retaliation given the scale of what it did on 7th October? Of course they did. Massive Israeli retaliation works to their political advantage in three ways. It inflames the Arab street. It enrages Islamic opinion around the world. And it has brought huge numbers of mass protesters onto the streets of Western capitals and cities. More than has ever happened before. Fueled in part by the substantial influx of Muslim immigrants into Western societies, which has changed not just the demographic balance, but the voting balance within Western countries. And we know from examples within Australia, and it's much more true in countries like the United States and Canada and the UK, where significant numbers concentrated in particular geographical constituencies can swing elections one way or the other. And a lot of immigrant populations bring their ancient hatreds, ethnic enmities and hostilities into our countries. And we are going to pay the price increasingly of that in the future, the failure to assimilate them into an existing uh, cultural values and norms. And, and we'll, it is a, going forward is going to be a major issue for us. Uh, and we've shied away from confronting it because it is such a sensitive topic. But I, don't, I think we'll pay a higher price if we don't debate it openly uh, than if we actually debate it properly with due civility and dirty and ensuring that those who are already here, if they are conforming to our values, are protected from any prejudice and retaliation. So I think we have to be careful that in our fight against, against anti-Semitism, we don't actually fall into the trap of Islamophobia either. And that's not an easy task. But then life was never meant to be easy. That, 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 that's what leadership is for. Uh, and I come back to that. I, I think at a time when the need for responsible, visionary, reconciling leadership has never been greater, we seem to have an absolute dearth and lack of that, which is a great pity. Yeah, well, well, well said. And there's nothing more important than understanding the nuance. And this is the big deal. And I thank you for being able to explain that. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask the professor about possible solutions, if they are even possible, at the end of whatever happens with Israel Hamas in the Gaza Strip. We'll take a break and be back with more here on Weekends. You're watching and listening to TNT. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. 
You can use it to create an easy to follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong. Some of these steps might be tough to fill out and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back. And we are with Professor Ramesh Thakur this hour. And we've been talking about the United Nations, the Israeli-Hamas-Gaza war. And in this segment, with the limited time we've got left, I'm going to propose a very big question. Professor, what do you think or what ideas have you got for a solution at the end of the war, given that Russia? President Vladimir Putin, along with US President Joe Biden, both agree on a two-state solution, but Israel seems to be the odd man out and doesn't really want to go that way. How do you think or what's possible at the end of this? Well, there is a powerful strand within Israeli society that thinks that the two-state solution is a liberal conceit in the West that, that that's now unrealistic. Uh, you are talking earlier about the the Jewish, about anti-Semitism and and the complexities of that. I think we tend to forget that a lot of the people living in southern Israel before 7th October were disproportionate number of Israeli peaceniks who believed in coexistence and were interested in finding ways of accommodating uh, with Palestinians. I think also we should remember the extent to which progressive Jews in Western societies have been well to the left of center. And this has been a wake-up call for them, that many of the progressive causes that they identified with and supported, the people from those causes have turned on them. Uh, and you have the LGBT plus or queers for Palestine. Well, which is the country in the entire Middle East that is most hospitable to gays, lesbians, and the whole rainbow coalition? It's Israel. Uh, and what happens to them, conversely, 
in Hamas ruled uh, and Hezbollah ruled jurisdictions. Well, they get thrown off roofs. So it's been a wake-up call in that sense. Nonetheless, I think you have to accept Israel's right to exist accompanied by the right to defend itself. And you have to accept that the Palestinians have a right to their own state if they so want it. And the Gaza and the West Bank uh, are going to have to be part of that. I mean, you have 2.3 million people crammed into a tiny strip uh, in the Gaza. Uh, and, and where are they going to go? But that's going to now be a long-term solution. I think in the immediate future, you've got to have, firstly, you've got to destroy Hamas as a fighting force and dismantle the entire top leadership structure throughout Gaza. And they have to go. I just don't see there's any possibility of coexistence with any surviving Hamas structure. Uh, it just cannot be. They're a death cult and and they should have to go. Then I think there's going to have to be, at least for some time, demilitarization in the Gaza. Because there's no way after this that Israel can accept a potential future threat located in Gaza that can come across. And clearly, Israeli deterrence failed. Israeli systems failed. It can happen again. And from their point of view, they have to adapt to the shock of the softening support for them in the Western countries that they have relied on in the past, which means they're going to have to rely on themselves much more so than even in the past, hence the demilitarization. And the third element, I think, is going to be de-radicalization of the people, the population. And there the hopeful examples are what happened in Germany and Japan after the Second World War. We did succeed in de-radicalizing, in making these societies confront the ugliness of the regimes that had preceded and and led to the Second World War in the two theaters. So it can be done. It will need to be done. It will require uh, considerable international support and investment, and it will take time. I think the military parts and security parts will be more likely to be Western countries uh, from North America, Europe, maybe Australian troops as well. But the Arab and Islamic countries will need to be involved in the de-radicalization part. And let's remember, to most of the surrounding Arab regimes as well, radicalism is a threat to them as well. So that that is a common agenda already. It's hopeful that the tentative steps towards normalization with some of the Arab neighbors for Israel have not been abandoned. They've been put on pause. But there's been no suggestion that Saudi Arabia, for example, is walking away from that. So that remains a hopeful part. Uh, And I think countries like Saudi Arabia, like Turkey, uh, the role of Turkey, I think, is going to be critical in in a lot of this. So that will have to be done. Uh, And that de-radicalization will include, very importantly, uh, curricula in the schools, where there there is a lot of uh, Jew hatred that's inculcated there. And then I think sooner or later, there's going to have to be some sort of a democratic solution where people of Palestine are going to have to take responsibility for their own political future of coexistence with the neighboring state of Israel. There's no sign as yet that either the Palestinian Authority or any of the other groups contending for power are prepared to acknowledge 
the reality of Israel's existence and its right to continue existence. So I think we should give as much effort uh, to that as uh, uh, as to the military side of it. But that's one way or the other is going to have to be a solution uh, along those lines. Uh, now, of course, the worrying thing is that old joke about, you know, when Godwin asked when did the Middle East conflict be solved, the answer was not in my lifetime from God. So maybe. But, you know, we, we live in hope. There has been a lot of progress. Uh, I, look, another optimistic element, and let me finish this part on that optimistic element. There's been a surprising instantaneous and spontaneous identification of Arab Israelis with the state of Israel directly as a result of and following what happened on 7th October. Uh, I think that's come as a very pleasant surprise to me as an independent observer. And that gives me hope that it is possible to share a common framework and to join in the abhorrence of what Hamas did on 7th October and instead to re-engage with respect to the common humanity uh, that people share regardless of national borders. Yeah, beautifully put. And it's, uh, it's inspiring to know that there are people that are amply qualified that are observing in real time and are able to provide perspective that many of us perhaps oversimplify in the process of, as I said earlier, of trying to pick a side and thinking that that's the way through. It's a lot more complicated than that. Now, interestingly, in all the work that you're doing, and etc., you still find time to write articles to point out this false economy in this green economic world and the economic realities that are starting to set in, in particular, noting that Rishi Sunak pushed back his plans by five years in terms of uh, eliminating petrol-powered motor vehicles and the whole EV world, where I did a story uh, last year that some 3,900 car dealers in the United States had written to Joe Biden and said, please end this subsidy. We cannot sell an electric vehicle. And you've also followed down in a similar pathway. Can you tell us what it is about the electric vehicle green economy that the governments are pushing so hard and the people simply aren't engaging with? Well, it seems to me that the government's commitment to that particular agenda is more ideological than practical and scientific. Uh, and again, again, simplifying to a large extent, but there are two elements to that. One is when we look at emissions, we look only at the point of the end of the exhaust pipe. And we don't look at all the production of all the components that go into an EV. And we don't look at what is required to run it. It's all very well to say they're run by electricity, but how is electricity produced? At the moment, a lot of it, most of it, is in fact fossil fuel based. And the production, a lot of it, is now, in fact, China has overtaken, China is the biggest EV manufacturer. And where do we think China's electricity is, comes from that goes into manufacturing these? And where are these uh, minerals uh, mined uh, and, and come from? And what about the child labor involved in that? And then at the end of that, the networks, transmission networks that are required for that, uh, the cost to agriculture, if you're going to go in for renewables, for example, 
and then the disposal and dismantling and, and, and the cost of heavier vehicles, the propensity to catch fires, uh, you know, combustion, self-combustion, spontaneous combustion, the high insurance costs, the lower uh, trade-in values, all these factors. So it's, as we saw even in the COVID years, you can't prioritize one element over all other considerations. There are key trade-offs involved. Uh, the extent to which you're prepared to give up lifestyles today and accept additional cost of living uh, in pursuit of goals for some, much of the science that remains contested, despite all claims of settled science, uh, that I just don't think is, is true. And a lot of the predictions they have made, we must do this within two or three years. Uh, renewables are going to be cheap and abundant. Well, I've been hearing that for two decades now. And every time it keeps saying, well, it, you know, prices go up. We have problems of intermittency. We are warned not to uh, overuse electricity for our air conditioners if the weather gets too hot or heaters if the weather gets too cold. We tend to forget that there's a research suggesting that more people die from extreme cold by several factorfold than from extreme heat, that w warming has beneficial impacts in some places, that there's been, it, it's a very complex story. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think we hanker for simple solutions uh, and simple facts, uh, states. So, so climate action now, climate emergency, uh, I've become a bit dubious of sloganeering. A slogan is not a substitute for considered responsible long-term policy, put it that way. Yes, indeed. And you've made two references today to ideology and idealism, and I find that fascinating. So you mentioned earlier that uh, the United Nations is the uh, the merging of two ideas, reality and uh, and idealism, but also the ideology of green politics. And this must be the fracturing of the reality yet again, where somehow the uh, governments around the world led by global authorities are just pushing ideology, but that must be where this whole system breaks down because reality will crash any ideology to the ground when people can't put food on the table but are expected to find $100,000 to buy their next vehicle just to keep the government happy. Do you think it will fall apart simply when too many people have just had enough? Yes, it will. Uh, at some point, ideology will meet reality and it's reality that will prevail. Uh, look, there are, again, two considerations. Firstly, it's fossil fuel-based industrial revolution that produced the biggest gains in human welfare in history. We are wealthier, healthier, better educated today than ever before. It's led to a democratization of society. It freed us from the drudgery of work on the landlords, feudal landlords' farms. It freed women from the home and allowed them to get into the workforce and at, at expand their life, choice, life choices. And that has also, if let's stipulate that it has produced increased emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and that that has contributed to global warming, which will in due course have detrimental impacts. The question then becomes, do we allow the Chinas and Indias and Brazils to aspire to something like a reasonable lifestyle for most of the people, or do we shut the doors to them? If we allow them to do that, do we accept a corresponding cutback to our lifestyles? 
I think rushing into that is going to produce more turmoil and volatility and setback than is sustainable. That's my worry. Yes, indeed. It's uh, very, very important that uh, we understand what it is that's really going on and the perspectives that follow. Professor, you have answered so many questions, provided that perspective that is desperately needed. Ramesh Thakur, I want to thank you for your time today on Weekends with Jason Alborn. We're going to take a break for news. And when we come back, Anita Krishna will be here for a brand new conversation. Thanks for watching. We'll be back after this. You're on TNT.